0: Hey, This is Stu with Bitcoin and Financial Independence, and I'm a little bit fired up today. I'm just going to jump right into it. I was scrolling across LinkedIn this morning, as I often do, probably shouldn't, but that is what I do a lot of mornings, I guess. And one of my connections had commented on this post, and so I I read it, and it was kind of interesting. Um, It was by this guy who has a job title. He's a personal finance advisor. He's been doing this since 2016. He's self-employed. And it just shows that he does some one-on-one coaching and he helps people set up a plan so that they can save money on taxes, fees. It sounds like he helps them pick stocks, meaning like passive index funds, if I had to guess, and really just automate your system and, and have a financial plan. So it sounds like really overall good stuff. And his target audience is high-earning millennials, so six-figure earning millennials He wants to help you have a plan. Now, the other thing that I see about this guy on his profile is that he is a certified insurance consultant and he's got a license, it appears, to sell life and health insurance from FINRA. And so, anyway, he makes this post about how Americans are going to pay more than double on taxes before you reach retirement. Uh, This makes most savings plans obsolete. So he's arguing that because taxes are going to be so high in the future, whatever you're saving right now, is negated. It doesn't matter if you're saving ten percent. How's that going to help you when taxes are twice as much? Right. That's his point. So he says most people are not protected against higher taxes. And then he talks about how a traditional IRA or four hundred one k works, which you know I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, but then he talks about a Roth IRA, and he actually had a mistake in his post about how qualified Roth distributions they are not taxed. But he he was basically saying that they were taxes. What he was indicating. And so my, my connection, who is a certified financial planner, uh, has a higher level of certification than this guy. He kind of sets the record straight and says that, you know, Roth distributions are not taxable, period. And, and so this guy, the personal finance guy, the coach and life insurance salesman, he, he goes and he corrects this post. But just kind of gave me a weird feeling and, and a little bit of a red flag. And he ends the post saying that finding ways to have your savings tax-free is the key to your future. Not sure to find more places for them. My upcoming newsletter will help with that. So he's got um, a newsletter. He's got four times as many followers as me. And obviously this is bait for him to sell you what's known as whole life insurance or universal life insurance. You'll often hear that. Um, Sometimes it's called indexed universal life or permanent life insurance. Um, I don't agree with Dave Ramsey on many things but he will always rail against whole life insurance or universal life insurance, permanent life insurance. I'm more of a Robert Kiyosaki guy. uh, That's Rich Dad Poor Dad, if you're not familiar with that book. Great book, very mindset changing. And kind of the guy in between Robert Kiyosaki and Dave Ramsey, in my mind, would be Clark Howard, who also hates whole life insurance, permanent life insurance, index universal life insurance, all of that stuff. Now, I will say this. This is for entertainment purposes only. I'm not a financial advisor. Both of these guys are more qualified than me to speak on these subjects, but it just struck me as odd. You know, I started my Roth IRA in 2009 when I was 18 years old. My dad explained it to me, and I've known how they work for the last 14 years. And this guy's been doing it for seven years, and this is his full-time thing, though. Like for me, investing is a hobby. I work in IT, uh, but this guy who's been supposedly in it all day every day for seven years does not. So, so it just kind of st- Struck me as odd, and so I just wanted to make this little comment about how to save on taxes. Because what the rich people do, uh, let's just take your your hypothetical rich person. They have ten million dollars in assets. It doesn't matter what it is. Let's just say that it's most likely going to be, we'll say, ten million dollars of stocks or real estate. And what rich people do is they never sell, so they never pay capital gains tax. They never get taxed because they never sell. It's that simple. What do they do instead? Well, if you have $10 million and you wanna live off of $500,000 a year, I mean, it's not that hard. A lot of the people that are that rich anyway are making a lot of money. And even the dividend payment on $10 million in stocks would be $300,000 at a 3% dividend, which is roughly what you can get in the stock market in a dividend fund. But anyway, let's just say that they wanna live off of $500,000. What the rich people do is they borrow against their assets. And because they're rich and they're high income they don't sell, they just keep adding to the pile, but they want to live a little bit, maybe they want to spend more than they make that year to buy their uh to buy their private jet or whatever else you know whatever perception we have that rich people do hypothetically uh what they do is they will borrow against their stock at a margin account since they are rich and they have high income, they have the best credit scores, they get really cheap interest rates, so all they do is borrow defer. That money, they defer payments. I'll tell you what this investor did in two thousand nine. This investor that I know bought a house in cash. It was a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house, and he paid full price, owed nothing on it. And then he went and got what's known as a home equity line of credit for two hundred thousand dollars. So so now he's made available eighty percent of what he paid for the house and this is pretty typical as far as a HELOC or a home equity line of credit goes usually a bank will let you borrow eighty percent of the value of the house this is called eighty percent loan to value it's kinda like instead of putting twenty percent down on a house you are paying cash and then going and pulling out eighty percent of that value later except you can choose to use it or not and because of this financial crisis and houses were very cheap. So were condos. This investor went and bought two condos for a ridiculously cheap price of about forty or $50,000, something crazy like that. Those condos today are now worth multiple six figures and the money invested was more than 5x. And so they were actually owned free and clear. But eventually as the value went up, this investor was able to go get HELOCs on those properties as well. When you use a home equity line of credit, a HELOC How it works typically is you can withdraw the money for a certain period of time before you have to pay it back. My home equity line of credit is a 10-year borrowing period, and that's pretty typical for a lot of home equity line of credits is a 10-year, I think some are 12 or 15, and then it's all due at the end. Some of them you can pay interest only in the first seven years, and after that, the last three years, you have to pay back the principal with it. So you can end up with some pretty steep payments. Now, my home equity line of credit, I actually locked in an interest rate for three years. That's 2.85%. And after that, it will probably be 7 to 10% if rates stay where they are now. Uh, but if the Fed drops rates again, then it will, it will change depending on what the Federal Reserve sets interest rates at. So these rates on HELOCs are variable. They move with whatever the Federal Reserve says. And so right now, they're really high. But to show you what it means to buy, borrow, and defer, This investor that I know got that HELOC on 2009. He still has it, except it's not the same HELOC. So what he did was he paid 3% interest over the course of seven years. So from 2009 to 2016, he's paying, we'll say, 3% on $100,000 that he borrowed. That's $3,000 a year. And he's also collecting rent on these condos. We'll say that's $1,000 or $1,500 a month per condo. So he makes back all of his interest money within one month of renting out these condos, and he's just paying the interest. Now, he's not any less in debt because he's not actually paying down the balance. Now that rates are going up, obviously it would make sense to pay those down. But the thing is is that the bank said, okay, it's been seven years. You've only paid us interest, so now we want you to pay down the whole thing. So what he does instead is in 2016, he says, I don't want to pay you back. I'm just going to refinance the HELOC. And then he gets a new HELOC. And that HELOC, now, he actually locks in with a promotional rate, a a less than 1% interest rate. And so now on a borrowed $100,000, he only has to pay $1,000 a year. And he makes three times that every month, renting it out. So he does that from 2016 to 2023. Now rates are really high, so it makes sense to start paying it back. But if he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to. He can just keep paying interest and he could just refinance it as long as it makes sense to keep paying that interest and collecting the cash uh, while keeping the money borrowed out. Meanwhile, the equity has gone up and up and up over these years. Obviously, home prices are softening right now. But this is what I'm saying is that that's how rich people do things is they buy assets, they borrow against them for cheap. They use that borrowed money to make even more money And they defer those payments. They defer paying it down so that they can maximize their earnings. But it is harder now that rates are higher. So just know that this is how the rich people play the game. They buy solid assets. They borrow against those assets for cheap. And then they defer the payments while they are generating income from those assets underlying still. Okay, That's what they do. And then eventually when they die, those assets get inherited. And they never ended up paying tax on a huge amount of their wealth. And that just moves on to the next generation. So I hope that explanation makes sense. The reason why I made that comment is, you know, this insurance guy, he says that the key to the future is getting your savings to be tax free. What I just described is a tax free strategy. And so I I post that comment. But the response I get from the author of the post is that anyone who has to leverage their way to money is on a very dangerous road. There are too many better ways to do it than to go into debt against quote-unquote assets. And so I just respond like, yes, there's risk, but it can be managed. This is a double-edged sword, but this is what the rich people do in reality. And so I just wanted to take it another direction because this is a personal finance advice guy. Uh, I just said, also make sure to allocate a percentage of your portfolio to Bitcoin, which has the best risk-adjusted returns out of all asset classes. So he just said, Um, yeah, I'm just going to leave this right there with you and gave me a peace out sign. And I said, you know, when you're ready to learn about the best performing asset of the past decade and the only asset without counterparty risk, I'll be here. He responds, I've got plenty of others I can trust and understand it probably better than yourself. And then he gives me like the, the rock on with the pinky and the forefinger and the thumb out. And then I was like, okay, cool. I'm glad to know that you have people you can reach out to to learn about it. I'm also glad you learned how Roth IRAs work today, too. So I got a little bit snarky there, but this guy obviously has an agenda, and it is to sell life insurance and to stack those fatty commissions in his bank account from selling whole and permanent and universal life insurance policies to people. I will say this, Stacking Benjamins, the host of that show, uh, Joe Salcihai, he's a former financial advisor. Don't get me wrong. There are ways that you can leverage an index universal life policy, whole life permanent policy. To get money tax-free, there are ways that you can actually do this, and it's not that different from what I said: to buy, borrow, defer, because that's probably what he's talking about. Is you can actually get that entrance money in a whole, in a policy, and you have to like build it up this cash value, and it gets indexed, but you don't get all the gains if the stock market returns say like twenty-five percent a year. You usually only get like ten or twelve, but when it goes down twenty percent a year, you usually lose nothing. So you always earn 1%. So it's, it's kind of a weird instrument. And there are ways it can be tax-free. And there are ways you can borrow against it. And that's how he's talking about building value. But Joe Salcihi always says, like the amount of people that these types of policies make sense for is minuscule. It's tiny. But in some instances, it really can work. So if you want to learn more about it, I'm sure you can learn more about it somewhere else. But I am not the guy for that. The real point that I'm trying to make is that this guy just totally dismisses me when I talk about Bitcoin. And that's fine. But what really gets me is that we as Bitcoiners are dismissed without a second thought. People don't want to learn. People think it's a scam. We are still extremely early to Bitcoin. And you want to talk about what people say versus what they do. Um, I came across a website recently that was pretty interesting. It is called theyownbitcoin.com. And it's a list of famous people who have publicly confirmed their ownership of Bitcoin as well as politicians who openly support it. And there are many other famous people who do, in fact, own Bitcoin, but have not publicly announced it. So there's a source for everybody. And I may have mentioned this recently, but Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, owns Bitcoin. So does Elon Musk. Jack Dorsey, who is the the co-founder of Twitter and CEO, Block and Square at this point. Michael Saylor. Bill Gross as well. Steve Wozniak, a co-founder of Apple. Ray Dalio. uh, He's the founder of the world's largest hedge fund. Uh, Bill Miller, who is an amazing hedge fund manager, he owns 50% of his personal portfolio in Bitcoin. Peter Thiel, he's a billionaire entrepreneur, uh, the co-founder of PayPal, Uh, the former CEO of Morgan Stanley, Stanley Druckenmiller, another hedge fund manager and investor, super famous, Paul Tudor Jones, Mark Cuban, Kevin O'Leary, Tim Draper, Anthony Scaramucci, George Soros, the list goes on and on. But there are a lot of very, very smart. Some of the best investors in the world, some of the best hedge fund managers in the world own Bitcoin. And just think, like, are these people tuned in to financial markets? Do they know more than you? Uh, probably. Like, There's a little bit of social proof there. I'm not saying to buy stuff you don't understand and you should understand Bitcoin if you're going to buy some. But here's another thing that's really interesting. Bank of America and Fidelity purchased over $75 million of MicroStrategy stock in Q1 of this year, Bank of America and Fidelity. These are financial giants. And why would they buy MicroStrategy stock? MicroStrategy is a company that does like data analytics, business intelligence. It's kind of like Tableau or Power BI, if you've ever used those. If you if you work in a corporate office, you may see reports that are built in Tableau or Power BI. Uh, MicroStrategy competes with them. It's much smaller and it's owned by Michael Saylor. MicroStrategy has its, I believe, entire treasury in Bitcoin. It holds $4.17 billion in Bitcoin. It owns 140,000 Bitcoins. Bank of America loaded up heavily in Q1 of this year and became a top shareholder out of nowhere. They bought 59.5 million shares of MicroStrategy. Fidelity bought 25 million shares. Capital Research added 11% to their position and BlackRock and Vanguard also increased their position. So the top 10 owners of MicroStrategy, Vanguard is the second. They have almost a 10% stake. BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world, they own 6.24%. That's their stake in MicroStrategy. Bank of America came out of nowhere, like I said, with $60 million that they bought of MicroStrategy stock to now own a 2.37% stake. And Fidelity with $25 now has a 1% stake. Morgan Stanley has a 1% stake. Capital Research has a 1% stake. So all of these funds are starting to buy MicroStrategy, all of these investment houses, these financial giants. And what's interesting is that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you know, they call Bitcoin names all the time. Berkshire Hathaway owns a big stake in Bank of America. So indirectly, they own Bitcoin. Warren Buffett's stake in Bank of America is loading up on MicroStrategy which owns 140,000 Bitcoins worth about $4 billion. So why are all these big boy investors dipping their toe into Bitcoin and they're trying to do it indirectly? It seems like something's there. And I'll just end on this note that some of the people that are the most opposed to Bitcoin are the people that are in the financial advice industry. They're certified financial planners, financial advisors, people with a Series 67, 65, whatever from FINRA, things like that, they all seem to have like this, this thing just out to get Bitcoin and dismiss it. I, and I wonder why that is. I can't help but think that it's because they are threatened. It threatens their livelihood because what they're trying to do for you, all these financial advisors, they're trying to help you save your money and to invest your money and to, to fight inflation and outpace inflation. But Bitcoin is just, it has no inflation. It's a hard asset with a static supply, a supply that is unchanging and the demand for it is going up. So it's really the only asset that you can preserve your hard work in, your time in, and all the time you spend at your job that you will never be diluted. You will never be debased. No one can mess with your percentage of the overall Bitcoin supply. Bitcoin has the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other assets over a four-year period. I'll leave you a chart there in the comments and some of these links. Anyway, it just got me fired up because Bitcoin is still just just dismissed, misunderstood, we are still so early and I don't have any price predictions. I don't care about the price, although sure, it's exciting when it goes up. In a way, it's kind of sad because I really would love to load up more. Um, I will share that I converted about 15% of what's in my IRA into MicroStrategy and a few minor stocks, um, things like Marathon and Riot Blockchain. I think TerraWolf, CleanSpark, there's there's a few. There's like Iris Energy. There's several of these companies. And, and some are more renewable than others. Some are bigger than others. And I didn't even get to touch on this, but the Wall Street Journal put out this terrible, it's, it's like a hit piece on Bitcoin that's so misinformed. They doctored up photos uh, showing smog and smoke all around a Bitcoin mining facility where there are no emissions. You could just say it's a crock. It's a load of nonsense. The article cherry picked so much data. It's been debunked. It's just been attacked and destroyed by people that are checking the facts. It's an obvious attack on Bitcoin. And what's funny is Natalie Brunel also came and made some posts about the New York Times and their history. I mean, I mean, sure, I've read the New York Times. They have some good stuff every once in a while. But according to Nat Brunel's research, who is a reporter, she has a journalism background, she points out that the New York Times rejected the promise of airplane technology, early cars, space travel, and the internet. They also predicted in the 1970s that there would be an ice age. So we can expect them to get Bitcoin wrong at first too. They'll catch up eventually. And then there was also an article from 2006 that says, don't fear the bubble right before we had the great financial crisis. So I would say if you trust the New York Times, start taking it with a grain of salt, whatever they say, because their track record is not very good. All right, I've rambled enough. I've got that off my chest. Don't buy whole life or universal life or permanent life insurance. Uh, Make sure if you do work with a financial advisor that they are fiduciary in all aspects. Ideally, you would go with a fee-only financial advisor. If you are paying assets under management, you are getting ripped off. Just going to throw that out there. Um, But do your own research. And if you found this helpful, please share it with a friend. Remember, financial independence is doable, and I'll be back with you soon.